0: Hey everybody, hope y'all had a good week, I know I did. I was flipping through the news yesterday and came across this little nugget. So, from AP News in Stockholm, Sweden's center-right coalition government wants to cut red tape when it comes to dancing by abolishing decade-old requirement for restaurants, nightclubs, and other venues to obtain permits before they let patrons hit their boogie on. The proposal made Thursday means that venues no longer need a license to organize dances. Instead, as a general rule, they would only have to register with the police, and that could be done verbally and doesn't cost anything. Applying for permits incurs a fee for the establishment of about 700 kronar, which is about $67 in American money. As it is now, owners can lose their liquor and business licenses if police officers come by and find out that people are dancing and they did not have authorizations to dance. It is not reasonable for the state to regulate people's dance, Justice Minister Gunnar Stromar said in the government statement. By removing the requirement for a dance permit, we also reduce bureaucracy and cost for entrepreneurs and others who uh, organize dances. And I couldn't agree more. uh, Less government is always better no matter what we're talking about. Didn't they make a movie about this? Uh, Swedish media outlets welcome the move to abolish the dance permits, which have been called outdated and moralistic. The government proposed having a change take effect on July 1st, although it requires parliamentary approval. In 2016, the Swedish parliament voted unanimously to do away with the permits, but the requirements still exist in law and is enforced. Swedish broadcaster SVT said that for the last 20 years, lawmakers from every party except the Social Democrats have favored abolishing the permits. So there you go. Hopefully, uh, by July, everybody in Sweden, it's boogie time. Welcome to We All Go A Little Mad Sometimes with your host, Poncho. I have a pace for podcast and a passion for true crime. Coming to you live on tape from the southeastern United States of America. On tonight's show, we're going to take a little trip around the world. We're going to go to Russia and then we're going to head south and uh, stop by in Australia. Then we got a couple of news stories coming in right behind that. So we got a lot to get to. Now let's get busy. There's all kinds of dolls. There's porcelain dolls and Barbie dolls, Raggedy Ann dolls, Cabbage Patch dolls, Tickle Me Elmo dolls, maybe even Annabelle dolls. And then there's the homemade kind. In the pioneer days, moms made dolls out of old clothes or fabric and filled them with straw or cotton or even down feathers. In Russia, there's a feller that made dolls kind of a different way. Anatoly Moskin was born in 1966 in Nizhny Novgorod, Russia Nizhny Novgorod is a pretty good sized city it's uh, located right on the confluence of the Oka and Volga rivers in central Russia with a population over 1.2 million residents it's the sixth largest city in, in Russia it's the home of the Kremlin it's the home of the Chikolov Stairs and they're really cool, they come up from the olga river from the lower volga embankments to the upper volga embankments of the river and then they have like a figure eight pattern in them they were they were built in the late 40s by uh german uh german pow's actually built them in the late 40s actually did the construction on them and uh, if you look at them on the google to uh, within walking distance of the kfc and uh this city was also at one time called the Detroit of Russia for the auto manufacturing. As a boy, Anatoly liked to roam through the cemeteries in the Leninisky district of Nizhny Novgorod. He attributed his interest in death to an incident when he was a kid. He happened across the funeral of an 11-year-old girl and was forced to kiss the young girl against his will. An adult had pushed his head down to kiss the girl's waxy forehead which is a very strange thing for somebody to do to a kid. But as an adult, Moskvin became well-known in academic circles. He graduated from the philological faculty of Moscow State University. Looking at Moscow State University, it's a, it's a pretty big school, 47,000 students. It was established in uh, 1755. Yeah, forty-seven thousand kids can cheer on the Moscow State. Uh, Moscow State. Uh, well, they they don't they don't have a mascot, but they do have a coat of arms. Coat of arms is a shield with a building and a book on it. But they have school colors. Their school colors are, are they're they're blue, like a medium blue, like between Carolina blue and Penn State blue. But hey, it's a a place of higher education. Ain't a place for playing games, right? Anatoly's main areas of study were Celtic history and folklore. He also had a deep interest in cemeteries, burial rituals, and death in the occult. He kept a personal library of 60,000 books and documents, as well as a large doll collection. Anatoly, however, lived a secluded life. He lived with his parents, never marrying or even dating. His contemporaries considered him an eccentric genius. A philologist and linguist, he spoke 13 languages, which is extremely impressive. He had written several books and papers, working as a journalist, regularly contributing to newspapers and publications. Describing himself as a necropolist, I don't really know what a necropolis is. I suppose we could ask Anatoly. But I don't think he's available for comment. So let's ask Mr. Peterson. Hey, boys and girls. This is Rupert Peterson with the word of the day. Today's word is necropolis. Can you say that? I like the way you say that. Necropolis is kind of a made-up word. Where a necropolis is a cemetery. A large, elaborate cemetery. Specifically, the cemetery of ancient peoples. Necropolis literally means city of the dead. But if you add the suffix of the T on the end, kind of like if you're a piano player, and you add the suffix of I-S-T on the end, it's a noun, it's an action word. So if you're a piano player, you can add the suffix on the end, and you're a pianoist. I think that's pianist. So if you put the suffix of T on the end of necropolis, then you're an expert in cemeteries. A necropolis, which is a little bit on the creepy side. Thanks, Mr. Peterson. Moskvin was considered an expert on uh, local cemeteries in the uh, Nizhny Novgorod Oblast. I asked Mr. Peterson about Oblast, and he barked at me and said, there's no English translation, and his head started to smoke. So I had to look it up. It's similar to, like, a township or like here in the United States, where a lot of cities have ETJs around the city, like an extraterritorial jurisdiction. So, like the city of uh, Nizhny Novgorod might have a population of 1.2 million. The Nizhny Novgorod Oblast has a population of like 1.7 million because it's the administrative area around the city. In 2005, a fellow academic and publisher commissioned Moskvin to make a journalistic account of the dead in more than 700 cemeteries in 40 regions of the Nizhny Novgorod Oblast. Moskvin claimed he visited 752 cemeteries over the course of two years. He walked up to 18 miles a day, drank from puddles, spent nights in abandoned farms, slept in cemeteries, and even spent a night in a coffin that was being prepared for a funeral. He was suspected many times of vandalism and theft, but was never arrested. He showed the authorities his credentials and explained to them what he was doing, and they left him alone. But from 2006 to 2010, he worked as a freelance writer for the Nizhny Novgorod Worker, which is a newspaper. And during 2008, Moskvin wrote, extensively about cemeteries. Investigators from the Center for Combating Extremism were investigating grave desecrations around Nizhny Novgorod. People were taking plates off of uh, tombstones. There was damage done to local Muslim graves as well. And uh, so the investigators came to Moskvin and searched his house. They were quite surprised to find life-size dolls in the house. At close examination, one of the officers detected a rattle and an odor emanating from one of the dolls. The investigators realized, to their great surprise, that they were, are, or were, human. Moskman was arrested on November 2nd, 2011. He had 26 dolls inside the house and garage. They were on shelves and sofas in rooms cluttered with books and papers. Moskvin's parents were out of the house for long stretches of time and claimed that they had no knowledge of the human part of the dolls. Which, I have a problem with that. I don't believe that for a minute. They had to know something was up because those things, they had to smell. And if you've ever seen pictures of them, you can Google the pictures of them. I was going to use one as the picture for my episode. thought it was distasteful, so I took it off. And I put a picture of a frog up, which some people actually find that tasteful, which we'll hear about that later on in the episode. But anyway, his parents, I feel like, had to know, but I honestly believe that they were so weirded out by him that they were afraid of him and afraid to say anything. The police also found grave and graveyard bits all around inside the house that found name plates and parts of tombstones and things of that nature and they also found maps of cemeteries and instructions for making dolls and photographs and videos of open graves and disinterred bodies. Investigators found inside the dolls music boxes or toys so that they would make noise when he touched them. One doll had a part of her gravestone with her name scrawled on it. Another contained the hospital tag with the date and cause of her death. And these dolls, the ages ranged from Three to twenty-nine was the ages of these dolls that he had in his house. Uh, Moskman actively cooperated with the investigation. He was charged with uh, grave desecration, which carried a five-year prison sentence. The hate crime charges for defacing the Muslim graves was later dropped. And after a, a psychological evaluation, it was determined that he had a form of paranoid schizophrenia. I believe now, however paranoia was a symptom of schizophrenia so now they just use schizophrenia as a blanket term and if I'm wrong on that I'm sure I'll hear about it in a hearing on May 25th 2012 in the Leninistri district of Najni Novgorod Dean Anatoly unfit to stand trial essentially freeing him from the criminal charges but and I almost fell off my chair when I read this he was sentenced to coercive medical measures. And automatically I'm thinking, you know, car battery, jumper cables, nipples. But all joking aside, let's face it, I mean, this guy, he really needed help. So I looked up coercive medical measures and it was essentially, they, they gave him his schizophrenia medicine whether he wanted it or not. Mossman was entered into a psychiatric clinic with his stay being regularly reviewed. So I guess he got the uh, perpetual stay room at the psychiatric clinic. But in uh, February 2013, April 2014, and July 2015, um, he was deemed unfit for trial. And in September 2018, Moskin's doctors stated that he was no longer a danger, uh, petitioned for outpatient care at his home. And in uh, 2019, A subsequent psychiatric evaluation found it was too early to release Moskvin and the hospital withdrew their petition. And that's where he remains to this day. In an interview, Moskvin stated that he felt great sympathy for the dead children. He thought they could be brought back to life through science or black magic. Now being an expert on Celtic and other cultures, including the people of Siberia and ancient Druids, they all had similar practices communicating with the dead. Moskman began searching obituaries for recently deceased children. He would sleep on a child's grave that spoke to him to determine if they wished to be brought back to life. did this for some 20 years but it started to hurt his body so he decided I'll just take them home with me. He researched mummification and figured out a process for preserving the bodies using salt and baking soda and storing them in a dry place for a while before taking them home and filling the bodies with rags and padding adding waxed masks and nail polish over their faces then dressing them in bright colored clothing and putting wigs on them and then the bodies appeared to be large homemade dolls Moskvin considered the dolls his children and he denied any sexual connection with them at all he spoke and interacted with them they watched cartoons they had birthday parties and and then they did holidays together an incredibly intelligent person Moskvin has published English to Russian and Russian to English dictionaries, as well as great dictionaries of foreign words, um, with 25,000 words. But you know, intelligent people sometimes have quirks and they had some quirks. You can see on our, on our podcast notes, it says Poncho uh, hosted by Poncho and Walter and, and Walter has quirks too. Walter is, she's the silent Bob of the podcast. Yes, I said she, she's the silent Bob of the podcast, but she's very intelligent and she helps us out a great deal with the podcast, but she's, she's got quirks too. Right now, I bet she's sitting in the living room, knitting some booties or blanket for one of the grandbabies with a big old hot cup of tea, the tinfoil hat on, listening to a podcast about chemtrails or UFOs or. Mothman, or Chupacabris. She's great and she's smart, but she's quirky. Moskin was quirky too. He may be the quirkiest of all the quirkies. In court, Moskvin stated, you left your girls out in the cold and I brought them home and warmed them up. His greatest desire was to have a daughter, but the Russian adoption agency had turned him away due to his low income. So he essentially made his own. Uh, Mossman was ordered to pay compensation to the families. I've read different accounts on this and how much and all these different things. I mean, he has no money, but anyway, he was ordered to pay compensation to the families. And uh, one of the one of the fathers of one of the children or dolls stated that um, he took better care of her than we ever did, and he refused payment. So that's the story of Anatoly Moskvin, and it's sad, and it's true, and I hope he's getting the help he needs. So we're going to move on to second chances. I believe everybody deserves a second chance. However, this guy, he had a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance, and uh, he kept escalating every time, just like others we've done in this segment of the show. So we're in Australia and of course we're talking about uh, Peter norris Dupas, who was uh, born July 6th, 1953. He is an Australian serial killer serving three consecutive life sentences for murder. His criminal signature was to remove the breast of his female victims. He was convicted of three murders and considered a suspect in at least three more. So anyway, well Dupus was he was the youngest of three children and described as a fairly normal family. He was born in Sydney, uh, New South Wales, and his family moved to Melbourne when he was just a toddler. Um, both of his siblings were considerably older than him, and his parents treated him pretty much like an only child. So his first offense was in October, October 3rd, 1968, at the age of 15. He was still in school and he um, went to his neighbor's house and re- requested to borrow a knife for purpose of peeling vegetables and i guess when she gave him the knife he turned around and attacked her and stabbed her in the face and the neck and the hands as she attempted to fight him off uh, later he told police he could uh, he didn't know why he did what he did so for this devil made me do it slight breach in neighborly etiquette and he received 18 months probation a dupus had dropped out of high school Uh, in the 10th grade, I believe it was, at the age of 17. So in October 1969, the mortuary located at the Austin Hospital was broken into. The bodies of two elderly women were mutilated using a pathologist knife, and one body contained a strange wound inflicted with a knife in the area of the thigh, and the police uh, now believe that dupus was involved in the the break-in because the wounds inflicted matched that of later murder victim Nicole Patterson then we move on to July of uh, 1974 when he was sentenced to nine years in prison uh, with a minimum of five years for an attack on a married woman in her own home Dupas had broken into the victim's house and threatened her with a knife before tying her up and raping her now I'm gonna keep track of all these things that the officials have said about this guy along the way in this attack the the judge Described the offense as one of the worst rapes that could be imagined. So he gave him nine years. He went to jail. He was sentenced to nine years. A psychiatrist said at the same time that I'm reasonably certain that this youth has a serious psychosexual problem, that he is using the technique of denial as a coping device, and that he is seen to be potentially dangerous. The denial technique makes it makes for a huge difficulty in treatment that's what the psychiatrist said then also a senior detective who interviewed dupus in uh, 1973 said he stood out to me as a guy that was just pure evil his attacks were all carefully planned and he showed no remorse we could see where this guy was going i remember thinking this guy could go all the way He's an unmitigated liar. He's very dangerous. He's a very dangerous young person who will continue to offend where females are concerned and will possibly cause the death of one of his victims if he's not straightened out. So this is 1974 and you have these three different people saying that's serious things about this guy almost from the get-go. He goes the he's sentenced to nine years in jail and of course five years later he's back out on the streets. And two months after his release, he again re-offends. He molested women in four separate attacks over a 10-day period, right after he gets out of jail. So on February uh, 1980, he receives a five-year minimum sentence for three charges of assault with intent to rape, malicious wounding, assault with uh, intent to rob, and indecent assault. And in 1980, there's another report on this guy that says there's little that can be said in dupus's favor he remains an extremely disturbed immature and dangerous man his release on parole was a mistake so here we are 1980 they're admitting they made a mistake and but they only give him five years in prison for these assault charges right after he got out of prison for his last assault charges So he was released from prison again in February 1985 and approximately a month later, he followed a woman onto the beach and attacked her at knife point uh, before raping her. He later told police, I'm sorry for what happened, everyone was telling me I'm okay, I never thought it was going to happen again, I only wanted to live a normal life, that is absolute bullshit. He's trying to spin his actions back onto the authorities that let him out, never taking responsibility for anything. So in June 1985, he was sentenced to 12 years imprisonment for this beach rape. And turnaround released in 1992 after serving seven years of his sentence with somebody who is a known sex offender. This next bit here just shows you what an absolute manipulator this guy was. So he was in prison doing his time while well, he formed a relationship with a mental health nurse who was 16 years older than him, and um, the, pair, the pair got married in 1987. She described uh, her marriage to Dupas. He insisted that he was in love with me, and that with my help, he could come out of himself and become a normal person. He said she agreed to marry Dupas not out of a particular love for the man, but from a sense of responsibility to helping him become a useful member of the community. She said, in her mind, our relationship was mother and son. Our sex life was very basic, almost non-existent, and I would go along with it out of a sense of responsibility. But I got to the stage where I could not bear for him to touch me. His new wife found him to be self-obsessed, lazy, needy, and a snob, and they divorced in the mid-90s. He was sentenced to 12 years for his beach rape. And uh, he was released in 1992 after serving seven years of his sentence. I guess they they haven't learned. Uh, In less than two years after his release from prison, he was arrested again on charges of false imprisonment in uh, January 1994. He was wearing a hood and armed with a knife, uh, duct tape, and handcuffs. Dupus followed a woman who was picnicking and held her at knife point in a toilet but was chased off by her friends. As he was leaving the scene, he crashed his car and was apprehended. So in august 1994 after entering a guilty plea to one count of false imprisonment he was sentenced to three years and nine months in prison with a minimum of two years and nine months but in september 1996 which is two years and one month uh, Dupas was again released from prison he moved into a house in the melbourne suburb of pasco vale nicole amanda peterson was a 28 year old psychotherapist and youth counselor employed with the Ardoc Youth Foundation, an organization formed to assist with uh, young drug users. Patterson had desired to operate her own private practice and was using her home as an office. Uh, and she'd placed several ads in local newspapers in an effort to expand her client base. You know, working hard, doing the right thing. But on April 19th, 1999, um, her body was discovered by a friend. Patterson's friend had visited to attend the dinner engagement. And upon uh, hearing music from the radio discovered the front door was unlocked and she entered the house and found the body of Patterson severely mutilated. Patterson died from 27 stab wounds to her chest and back. Her body was discovered naked from the waist down. Her sk- skirt was found in a nearby bedroom and underwear around her ankles. The small pieces of yellow duct tape were attached to her body, and uh, both of her breasts had been removed. Her handbag and driver's license were stolen during the attack, and the murder weapon and her body parts had never been recovered. The uh, the police investigations of the crime scene revealed that uh, Patterson had a 9 a.m. appointment with a new client named Malcolm. It was noted in her personal diary alongside a mobile telephone number, and the number was traced to a student at Latrobe University named Harry. and police learned that Dupas had approached Harry with an offer of uh, labor and work on April 22nd, 1999. Apparently he was using Harry's phone and the police arrested Dupas on April 22nd, 1999 and charged him with the murder of Patterson later that same day. Telephone records reveal that Dupas made three prior phone calls to Patterson to arrange a counseling session to treat him for depression and gambling addiction. At first, he was calling from a public phone, and then over the course of the next six weeks, Dupas made calls to Patterson in an attempt to establish her vulnerability. Dupas later told police that he canceled his appointment with Patterson after being told by her his problem was something that he was able to work through of his own accord. See so he already he's taken no responsibility for any of this at all. Police also noticed scratches on Dupus's face and hands consistent with the struggle. Dupas claimed that they occurred from where he was working in his backyard shed and a piece of wood hit him while he was using his lathe, but however he didn't have a lathe. And he made a bunch of other excuses, but anyway, they uh the police the after searching his home revealed bloodstained clothing duct tape similar to that located at the crime scene and a ski mask and newspaper clippings detailing patterson's murder and also a paper containing an advertisement for psychotherapy services so at, at his trial the um the jury took less than three hours to deliver a guilty verdict and on august 22nd 2000 while sentenced in to life imprisonment judge Frank Vinson remarked, The prospects of your eventual rehabilitation must be regarded as so close to hopeless that they can be effectively discounted. There is no indication whatsoever that you have experienced any sense of remorse for what you have done, and I doubt that you are capable of any such human response. At a fundamental level, as human beings, you present to us the awful, threatening, An unanswerable question how did you come to be as you are he's just another wolf in sheep's clothing that has been let go over and over and over again essentially enabling him to do what he has done then we come to the murder of Margaret Mayer Margaret Josephine Mayer was 40 years old lady of the night I guess we could say working in the Melbourne area he was last seen alive at a supermarket at 12:20 a.m. and this was on October 4th 1997. Her body was discovered under a cardboard box that same afternoon by a man and his wife and their kids. They were collecting aluminum cans along the road and found her He's with his wife and kids. Holy cow. Um, a black glove was found near Mayer's body which police later confirmed to contain a DNA match and that that dupus. A post-mortem examination revealed that she had suffered a brutal attack I'll just leave it at that and he did the same thing to her he did to other girls it's just terrible but Dupas was already serving a life sentence without parole for the murder of Nicole Patterson at the time of his arrest for the Margaret Mayer murder and with um, him already in custody the police were able to obtain a DNA sample linking him to the 1997 murder of Mayer but the nature of the injuries were strikingly similar to those of his other offenses so he um that plus the DNA was pretty much they knew it was him but I'm going to read this what the judge said and you got to think that this should have been said back in 1990 but anyway here's what uh, judge Kay said and I'm going to read it in view of your appalling criminal history and in view of the particularly serious nature of the crime for which you have been convicted it is only appropriate that you be sentenced to life imprisonment even if the murder of Nicole Peterson had never occurred, I would have no hesitation in imposing a term of life imprisonment upon you. It is clear, both in the present case and from your previous convictions for rape and like offenses, that your offending is connected with the need by you to vindicate a perverted and sadistic hatred of women and a contempt for them and their right to live. As such, the present offense must be characterized as being in one of the most serious categories of murders which come before this court. You intentionally killed a harmless, defenseless woman, like all your other victims, had no prospect of protecting herself against you. At the time you committed that offense, you had over almost three decades terrorized women in this state. You have repeatedly violated a central norm of a decent civilized society. Your conduct in the present case is without mitigation or palliation. There has been no recognition by you of your wrongdoing. Rather, you repeat the same offense with even more brutality in 18 months after murdering Margaret Mayer. Based on your repeated violent offenses and on the gravity of this offense, there is no prospect of your rehabilitation. Nothing was advanced on your behalf to reflect that there is even the faintest glimmer of hope for you. Even if there were, any considerations of rehabilitation must, in this case, be subordinate to the gravity of your offending. The need for the imposition of a just punishment and the principle of general deterrence, all those circumstances combined, in my view, not only to justify, but also to require that I do not fix a minimum term. Yeah, so after three decades of this guy brutalizing women, um, they finally decide to get tough with him. So then we move on to the murder of uh, Marcina Havagas. She was 25 years old and she was a Melbourne woman murdered in an attack on November 1, 1997. She was visiting her grandmother's grave in the Greek Orthodox section of the Faulkner Cemetery. The alarm was raised by Bogus's fiance when she uh, failed to meet him later that day like the couple had planned and her body was discovered at 4:35 a.m. on November 5th, 1997. Her fiance actually found her. Uh she had been murdered 3 graves away from her grandmother. Please believe that um Havagas was attacked from behind while kneeling to attend to the flower arrangement at her at her grandmother's grave and she died from massive injuries including 87 stab wounds on her body. It's the same thing that Dupas has done before. Um, at the inquest they had nine witnesses identify Dupas as the man they saw at the Faulkner Cemetery that day that Havagas uh, was attacked and Dupas's grandfather's grave site was located about 400 feet away from the crime scene. Dupas frequented the first and last hotel, which is across the street from the Faulkner Cemetery. And again, Dupas lied about scratches on his body that he probably received during the attack. Dupas attempted to alter his appearance after the murder, and he was also identified by a woman from police photographs who said she saw him just minutes before the attack, about 65 feet from where. Havagas' murder had occurred. Detectives said that during the inquest that a car that was known to be used by Dupas at the time of the murder was immediately sold afterwards to a work associate and a, um, a forensic pathologist compared the wounds suffered by Havagas to other wounds that were inflicted to Dupus's other. The uh, victims said they were, they were pretty much the same. So anyway, they ended up charging him with the murder. So there's three other ones that he's suspected of but not convicted for was the the murder of Helen McMahon, a 47-year-old woman who was beat to death on Rye Beach on February 13th, 1985. They said the Dupus was imprisoned at the time of the murder and not released until two weeks later, but investigators learned that Dupus was on pre-release leave from the prison and living in the Rye area when McMahon was killed. There's also the murder of uh, Renita Burton, He's suspected of killing a 31-year-old at Sunbury in Victoria in 1993. And Kathleen Downs, uh, Dupus, is a suspect in the murder of a 95-year-old lady at a nursing home. Um, she was stabbed to death at 6.30 a.m. 1997, a month after of August's murder. Police investigations revealed that Dupus had telephoned the nursing home sometime before the murder. But no charges were laid regarding Uh, Downs murder, her murder is being considered for referral to the state coroner. So I said I was going to keep a running tally. So the quick rundown is: October 1968, he attacked his neighbor. July 1974, sentenced to five to nine years imprisonment for rape. 1979, approximately two months after his release from prison, he um, molested uh, women in four separate attacks. Um, 1980, he received a five-year minimum sentenced for uh, assault charges rape malicious wounding 1985 he was released from prison 1985 he was sentenced to 12 years in prison for rape less than two years after his release from prison he was arrested on charges of false imprisonment in 1994 after entering a uh, guilty plea on false imprisonment he was sentenced to three years nine months which he served uh, two years and one month 1996 he was released from prison October 4th 1997 uh, the Margaret Mayer murder, on November 4th, 1997, the Marcina Havagas murder, and 1999, April of 1999, the Nicole Peterson murder. Yeah, that's uh, that's one hell of a resume. So, you know, while in prison or while in police custody, this guy was acted like an angel, and as soon as they let him out, he turned into a real live monster. His attacks on women were brutal, and then they let him out, and then he'd do another brutal attack. And then let him out. And it's the same thing over and over and over again. And the end result was, unfortunately, that he started killing women. So that's the story of this guy that should have been locked away a long time ago. Never let out. So let's do a little news, a little palate cleanser to get the bad taste out of our mouth from the last two crazies we talked about. Hey, earlier in the show, I said something along the lines of, uh, I didn't want to post the picture of the dolls because it was distasteful. But I have something later on in the show that's tasteful, and this is it right here. The uh, National Park Service wants humans to stop licking toads. Pretty pretty much any park you go into, there are signs that say don't feed the bears or don't pet the squirrels or whatever. And uh, so now the National Park Service has included um, this to their signs. The National Park Service has added tongue contact with the uh, Sonoran Desert Toad among its various warnings. For park visitors, as we say with most things you come across in the national park, whether it be a banana slug or an unfamiliar mushroom or a large toad with glowing eyes in the dead of night, please refrain from licking. The toad, also known as the Colorado River toad, is about 7 inches in size and carries a weak, low-pitched ribbit sound. But the creature is far from harmless. The Sonoran Desert toads secrete a potent toxic that can make people sick if they touch it or get the poison in their mouth. Despite the risks, some people have discovered that the toad's toxic secretions contain a powerful hallucinogenic. In recent years, smoke in the amphibian secretions has grown in popularity, so much so that the species is even considered threatened, at least in New Mexico, due to collectors that want to use the animal for drug use. According to uh, the state's Department of Fish and Game, a number of public figures have reported experimenting with the toad's extracted toxins. Uh, Boxing legend Mike Tyson has spoken about it, and some researchers have begun to study it for its potential therapeutic benefits. Even Biden's son has uh, written about using it. The U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration considers the toxin a Schedule I drug, meaning it is currently not accepted for medical use and has a high potential for abuse. So there you go. When you're in the park, please refrain from licking the toads. This next little bit is from the New York Post, and I'm going to try to say this with a straight face. A pigeon wearing a backpack full of crystal meth was detained by a Canadian prison. The pigeon was detained last month in a Canadian jail after it was discovered to be carrying a backpack that contained crystal meth. The bird was found and later captured at the Pacific Institution Correctional Facility near Vancouver, after officers noticed the high-flying fowl and its cargo. My initial reaction was shock because of all the advancements in technology and the number of drones we've seen, said John Randall, Pacific Regional President of the Union of Canadian Correction Officers. The fact that it's tied to a pigeon is abnormal. According to Randall, the bird was apprehended on the penitentiary wall after the st- uh, staff set a trap for it, it was spotted by the correctional officers, I believe, and security, intelligent officers when the officers were doing their standard patrols around and throughout the unit and institution, Randall had said. That's when they initially spotted the bird with the package on it. Randall, who has never seen a winged uh, trafficker in his 13 years as a correction officer, stated that the smugglers would have had an easier time getting the drugs to land in this specific location had they used a drone instead of a live creature. The official also noted that the smugglers have recently had to go old school with their methods as law enforcement has increased their awareness of drug sm- uh, smuggling drones, something which Randall said the facility contends with daily. They've gone backwards in technology, they said. The introduction of uh, drugs in the federal prisons has become a huge crisis worried Randall. The whole goal of the prisons is to rehabilitate and release people into society as law-abiding citizens. So introducing drugs is scary, especially a drug like crystal meth. So there you go. The authorities are watching the uh, pigeons with backpacks. So yeah, there's the show. I hope you all uh, enjoyed it. Or, I don't know that you can enjoy something like this, but a uh, hope you got something out of it we'll see what's happening next week or next show this one took a long time to get out but it's out so all you dads out there hit pause on the game and go read to you kids for 15 minutes it'll mean the world to them you have a great week